Good afternoon. You are listening to Dawnland Signals on WERU-FM. Dawnland Signals is a monthly talk show where we hold space for critical conversations of truth, healing, and change here in the Dawnland. We explore topics such as restorative justice, restorative practices, decolonization, cultural revival, and more. Our guests are people involved in aspects of truth, healing, and change work. This program is offered in an effort to share, inspire, and inform. Donnelly & Signals is a collaboration of Wabanaki Reach and WERU-FM. And I am your co-host, Maria Girard. Good afternoon. I am your co-host, Esther Ann. This month marks 42 years since President Jimmy Carter signed the Maine Indian Claims Settlement Act into law. The Maine Indian Claims Settlement Act of 1980 was supposed to bring a close to a tumultuous decade in Maine history where Mainers feared for their property, Maine government vied to protect their interests, and tribal citizens suffered overt racial hostilities across Maine and severe fractionalism within their own community as a result of enormous pressure being exerted upon them. As it turned out, the Settlement Act settled very little. Its repercussions are still felt today in numerous misunderstandings of interpretation, while the intent of the main Indian land claims is in danger of becoming lost to history. Today, we are talking about Wabanaki Reach's current truth-telling initiative, Beyond the Claims, Stories from the Land in the Heart. Before we welcome our special guests, we first want to start with appreciating the land. Thank you, Esther. Before we delve into the conversation, let's just take a moment to pause to acknowledge the land beneath our feet, Wabanaki, the Dawn Land the land of the first light, land that has known Wabanaki ancestors, the tallest trees and the oldest rivers, land that has known peace and conflict, land that has nourished us and sustained us since time immemorial. We acknowledge the indigenous peoples of this land, Wabanaki, the Passamaquoddy, the Penobscot, Mi'kmaq, Maliseet, and Abenaki, and we give thanks to your stewardship and resilience. Nadal Nabem Nawak, All My Relations, we are broadcasting from WERU Studio in Blue Hill, Alamusik, Wabanaki. Moliwan Maria. So today we have uh, Reach's project coordinator for Beyond the Claims, Kate Russell, and Tim Love, a Penobscot and project storyteller with lived experience of the land claims era. So before, um, first, we want to start by just telling our, our listeners a little bit about Wabanaki Reach's truth-telling project, Beyond the Claims, Stories from the Land and the Heart. What is it and what groundwork has been laid so far? Maybe you want to start, Kate? Yeah, I'll start. Thank you, Esther. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Tim, for joining us today. Um, Beyond the Claims, Stories from the Land and the Heart is Wabanaki Reach's newest truth-telling initiative um, following the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, and it's really an oral history project that centers around the Maine Indian land claims and that era, and specifically the Maine Indian Claim Settlement Act of 1980. And um, 
we know that this piece of legislation has impacted many people in Wabanaki and Maine communities and still affects people today. Um, and our hope for this project, our main focus this past year has been gathering stories. So we have a team of story collectors. I have been story collecting as well. And we have been going out into uh, Wabanaki and Maine communities and meeting with people and sitting with them and recording a personal oral history interview. Um, and it's been a pretty remarkable experience. And we have about 35 interviews um, that we have collected since January. And we'll still be collecting through the end of this year. And we'll move into the next phase of the project, which is basically taking all of these stories, all of this information, all of this knowledge, um, and teasing out um, ideas and thoughts and quotes and resources to build um, educational resources over the next year. Thank you, Kate. Um, and so far, I, I just wanted to give a, a shout out. You acknowledge the team of story collectors. And so I just want to give a shout out to that team of story collectors that has been on the ground and gathering stories um, and being you know, such an active part of this um, phase of, of story gathering. So both of you come from come to this project from different places. And I was just curious what it has been like for you so far. Um, I want to invite Tim into the conversation if I could. Tim, you contributed a story to the project and how's the experience been for you and um, you know anything you'd like to share with us? Well, the experience, oh, first, thank you for having me. Um, the, the experience um, going way back uh, when I was very young, um, when the old timers who were running our government back then spoke about going to the, to the United Nations to um, seek redress of what had happened to us and the loss of our land and recognition as, as a nation. Um, I remember sitting in the tribal hall, which no longer exists, uh, actually laying on the bench and listening to them talk about um, what they had hoped for, uh, what the future would look like if we could get that recognition of an independent entity like the United Nations uh, to address our legitimacy as a tribal nation um, within the United States and actually internationally. Um, it was very interesting uh, listening to those conversations. So their vision back then was very broad. Uh, what, what they saw was what we are, a, an Indian nation who has rights, indigenous rights, um, that should be recognized by the United States. Um, so, yeah, I mean, back then, I, I, it didn't register until later in years when uh, the land claims actually became uh, a reality first through federal recognition in 1975 by a declaratory judgment of the United States Federal Court and, and the appellate court, um, at which time the, the United States government did not uh, appeal. So 
it was that was a joyous time. I mean, we always knew who we were, um, but now we were going to involve and uh, become what we thought was an equal uh, with the United States of America, being recognized as as a as a fairly recognized tribe. Um, of course, that brought a lot of uh, things to the tribe, you know, financially, uh, and which, which, you know, historically, those things, those programs, those engagements, um, was, was the government's one of their redress for uh, for what had happened to the tribes, but our picture was obviously much bigger than that. Uh, what we saw through our attorneys was recognition and then address the issue of our lands being stolen um, in 1796, you know, 1818, 1833, what have you, um, and being able to address those in a, in a way that was meaningful. Um, we, the United States government was not a he was a, a partner who willingly came into this. Uh, fortunately for us, we had uh, Jimmy Carter as the president um, after Gerald Ford, um, who was very supportive, as we know. But those were times when, when you know, when you look up at the sky and you saw all the stars, you saw everything, and and that's where we were headed. So. You know, during that time, it was uh, it was it was a great thing. We had a lot of hope uh, that we would get to where we wanted to be. Jim, I really appreciate um, how in that story you shared the longevity of these desires. You know that this was something that the old timers wanted, and and how you framed it in those two parts, like first the recognition, and then second. Um, to address the issue of the lands, it feels as it feels as though we did that. We're like we were able to do that, so it feels like those were accomplishments that the old timers wished to see happen. And then we did both of those. We got recognized as a um, a federally recognized tribe, and then the land claims came as that opportunity to address the the lands issue. Mm -hmm. So it feels like. Like a big check mark there. Is it done? <laughs> um, I wanted to move oh, over to Kate. I appreciate that, though, um, setting up that longevity of it. And that's one thing I think about a lot is how, you know, the land claims tends to be like new news to so many people, but it's old news to um, Penobscot and Passamaquoddy people for sure. Um, I wanted to just shift over to uh, Kate and as part of the, um, the truth-telling project, the Beyond the Claims, you, you had quite the learning curve. <laughs> and um, uh, what, what um, did you need to learn about you know, the land claims for, exis exis for example, I can't even talk today. <laughs> what did you have to learn about the land claims to um, you know, step into this this project? I remember you asked me this question last year when the last time I was on this program and 
I remember my answer being uh, about all the unlearning I had been having to do, being new to reach and this project. And since then, it has been an education, an absolute education. And I don't even know if I can keep up because the history of the land claims, the history of um, Wabanaki people, of um, America, of white settler colonialism, it is it is epic. So uh, it is ongoing for me what I have been learning, but in terms of the land claims, um, I have read as much as I could read. Um, there are wonderful resources out there. Um, Colin Woodard's Unsettled in the Portland Press Herald. Um, there's a book by Neil Rold's um, Unsettled Past, Unsettled Future, um, Restitution by Paul Broder. Um, but basically, many people have said that the land claims could be the most complex litigation ever brought in the federal courts. And to think about just the immensity of that, um, it's just incredibly layered and um, so many pieces are connecting. It's like a domino effect. You can't, this wouldn't have happened without this. And so trying to understand all of the pieces of history that have led to the next thing um, is dizzying, to be honest. So uh, my education is ongoing, just trying to understand um, the treaties, um, miscommunication, misunderstandings, um, different cultures clashing and trying to communicate, um, and all of this leading up to the Land Claims Settlement Act in 1980, as you can imagine, is so much. And I don't think I've even got the tip of the iceberg, to be honest. Um, so basically, it's been trying to learn um, what led up to the settlement. Why was there a case? Um, and it's just these very human moments that you start to, you know, you're peeling a layer of an onion and you learn about the women who sat on the dirt pile, you know, to protect their lands from, from a white man trying to build on their land. And then what happened after that? And then the treaty being found, um, some grandmother finding it in her trunk and what it said. And um, I mean, those are just two little pieces of a very long and complicated um, trajectory. Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. I've always been curious. This is Esther. I've always been curious about how um, in the early days of this, when it was starting to, to form, how the Penobscot and Passamaquoddy people connected. Like, how did that happen? And because I've heard, you know, I have my own memories being a child and how my parents were engaged in it, but I, and then I know Penobscot people. So I wonder how it, how it came together, how Penobscot and Passamaquoddy came together around this. Tim, do you have any? Oh well, yeah, I mean, as, as we all know, we, we're relatives and we have been relatives prehistory, always. Um, technically the Passamaquoddy v. Morton, which was the, case that we won to get recognition, um, we had an identical case. Um, treaties that were illegal, um, that, that, that took our land, 
most of it, and then eventually all of it. And we came together, um, our attorney, Tom Tareen, said, you know, you, you have identical cases and um, doing this collectively actually could, could be more powerful. Uh, more, you would have more strength rather than doing it separately. So it was easy to agree to that because we knew each other, the tribes, and felt very comfortable working together. So that's when we formed a, a negotiating team, uh, both tribes representative and eventually the, the Holton Band became part of it, also our relatives. Um, so, it, I mean, it was a natural progression for us to, to reach the point where we were one team working together to try to uh, reacquire our lands. Um, and it was, you know, a lot of people felt we should have gone through the courts. Um, based on what I know, historically, that it, it would have been difficult um, because of Congress's plenary power over tribes. Um, the Congress Clause, I guess, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3, whatever. Um, gives Congress that power. And we, we were frankly told during negotiations um, that that was an option being considered was to terminate the claim and impose a claim. Um, you know, when you have politicians making decisions, and I'm a former politician, uh, you look at ways that you can do things that are fair to everybody, but sometimes at the end, you end up being more fair to some than others. I mean, that's that's the reality. Um, so that was one issue that, that we faced collectively as a team. We talked and talked and, you know, reviewed the, the summation we were provided for a potential settlement, but we always did it together. We always did it collectively. You are listening to Dawnland Signals on WERU. I am your co-host, Maria Gerard, along with co-host Esther Ann. Dawnland Signals is a monthly talk show where we hold space for critical conversations of truth, healing, and change. And today we are talking about um, the main Indian land claims, beyond the claims, uh, Wabanaki Reach's truth-telling project with Kate Russell of Wabanaki Reach and Tim Love, Penobscot Elder, and project contributor with lived experience in the land claims. So Tim, you were, you were talking about uh, that strength and unity and that's, that's a, um, a theme that I've heard um, in, in my process of learning about the land claims and um, doing my scholarly research that that was one of the top reasons that Penobscots and Passamaquoddy were able to do this. And I always like to point out uh, when I'm talking about the land claims, what a big deal it was. Like it was really a big deal at that time. Wouldn't you agree? Well, it, you know, certainly for us, and I think if I recall right, at the time it, it was um, the first case where the 
the government had always said the 13 original colony tribes were not Indians. And Passamaquoddy V. Morton said, that's wrong. There, there was nothing in the law that says you're any less of a tribe than someone on the other side of the Hudson River. And, you know, we, we you know, we, we took that and, and understood that this was a big deal because as it turns out, it also impacted other tribes in New England and in the 13 colonies, whether it's Connecticut, Massachusetts, Virginia, um, you know, tribes who since then have become fairly recognized. Uh, so we were like the leaders of the time to open the doors. Um, and, you know, we we're very happy eventually to see all of this happen because it proved our point uh, of, of who we are. So, yeah, it, it, was, it was a big deal and, and something that even today gets discussed in different organizations such as USAT and places like that. The feelings, um, this is Esther, the feelings must, I mean, it must have been an emotional time too, especially for the, the politicians and the, and the tribal representatives that were coming together and negotiating. It must, I mean, I, it was exciting, but it, there must have been a little fear too, huh? Fear of the unknown and what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. It, it, the, the, the fear was that they would simply unilaterally impose a settlement, terminate and impose a settlement, which I mentioned previously, had been put on the table for reasons, you know, if we can't do this, here's what you're going to get. Uh, that was not acceptable. Um, but the, the you know, the, the options that we faced was, was, was court or try to negotiate something. And we felt very strongly that, that we could get something done that was meaningful and had a future because we, we, we have to think of what we knew back then. What did we know? And what it said was, if it goes to the courts, we're absolutely legally correct. Um, Pastor Court of E. Morton said it, it was right on point. Um, but as a practical matter, where you had a Congress, uh, politicians who said, how in the world can we allow uh, these Indian tribes to claim title to this property after all this time, as I like to say, um, even though the Constitution also was all this time from back when it was written and ratified. So we, it, 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 was, it was walking a fine line. You always were trying to find the best way uh, to do right for the tribes, but at the same time be practical and understand consequences if certain decisions got made. And that's where we ended up. I mean, we, you know, when we, we, we negotiated as far as we could, those issues we couldn't agree upon, we agreed that the Tribal State Commission would be a place for those to continue negotiation. Um, although, unfortunately, right after the claim was was, was signed and settled, uh, 
we were being sued um, by the state, which we thought, you know, it was very unfortunate because it went against the, the, the spirit of what we all had agreed to. And, you know, this whole idea that we gave up rights to the river is totally wrong. It isn't, that's not true. Um, but I mean, yeah, so it was, it was very exciting. We worked hard and, and we did the best we could based on what we knew at the time. I believe that to be so as well. This is Maria. And I appreciate that um, you speak about the spirit of the agreement um, because I feel like that that's the piece that gets lost over time. Like we may be able to amass this uh, legislative history, but um, where do we capture the spirit of the land claims and of the agreements? And so then that gets me thinking back now to um, the truth telling project. And um, Kate, did you want to talk a little bit about um, what what the hopes are to accomplish in the project or or um, you know the purpose of a project like this that's focused on the land claims? Sure. Um, I think the short answer is Wabanaki Reach's mission, which is bringing truth, healing, and change to the Dawnland. Um, but I also think about, and I wasn't there for the TRC, um, and Esther, maybe you can speak more about this, but this idea of you can't um, skip right to reconciliation, that you need to really take your time with that truth telling and really listening. Um, and not that reconciliation is a part of this project's purpose, but I know Maria, you have mentioned um, the hope of illuminating the humanity behind this piece of legislation. And I think ultimately gathering people's stories, you know, this project being guided by Wabanaki ways of being and knowing through oral history and storytelling, really sitting with people and giving them a space to tell their truth. Um, and, and I know we say healing, and I don't know if that happens for everyone, but that's certainly our hope in, in those truth-telling moments. Um, I think that's ultimately our, our goal for this project. Um, oh, when I think about what can we achieve by honoring these stories and creating learning resources, I don't know. Because to be honest, over the past year, listening to stories and learning as much as I can about this moment in time, what becomes so clear to me um, is just the humanity of it all. You know, like Tim is saying, we did the best we could with what we knew in that moment. And I think there are people on the other negotiating, you know, the other side of the negotiation who believe the same. Um, and, oh, what do I want to say? Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I don't know if we can create learning resources that will change anyone's minds or change the course of history. But I do think that there is power in listening to people's stories, honoring their truth and their experience, um, and 
deepening our understanding and our and the context of that moment in time. Um, so our hope has always been to um, humanize those who've been affected by the legislation, hear people from all sides of the argument, um, and then to amplify voices um, and to preserve preserve these stories for cultural continuity. Um, where we go from here with learning resources, um, I imagine what we create um, from these stories will serve as an educational um, tool to teach Wabanaki his history in schools, and also just an open doorway um, that is more accessible for people to enter into this moment, because I think it can be so alienating trying to wrap your head around, like I said, lawyers have said this is the most complex litigation, you know, that they maybe have ever seen. So someone like me, who is a theater maker, um, to try and understand it is, um, it's difficult, it's challenging. And so my hope is that the resources we create can be an alternative way into understanding, um, not just through the head, but through the heart of people's experiences and how people have been affected and impacted by this moment in time. I, this is Esther, I think um, it's, I can't state enough how valuable it is to have this oral history, um, to have these stories in the voices of the people who experience them. And like you said, give them that space to share. And I, I really appreciate um, as part of Reach's project that, that, um, that focus on that history first, you know, your story is first and foremost important, right? Whoever's sharing their story. And then what we can glean from that and help others with the learning resources comes later. I think that's so valuable because so many families, you know, weren't able, their elders, our elders have passed without us ever recording their stories and hearing in their voices. And I think that alone, just the oral history and the archive um, even if they choose to keep it to themselves and just share with their family, it's super valuable. And I really appreciate that. You know, sometimes I, I know it's not uh, comfortable. It isn't comfortable given a story. I gave, um, I shared, a, gave a statement to the Truth Commission through Child Welfare, the one we did um, with Child Welfare. And then I also uh, gave a story for this. And it's, it's not easy because it's your, you know, I'm given my story, but my story isn't just me in a vacuum. It, it includes other people. And there's always that dance. Oh, geez, you know, I don't know if I want to talk about this because it, I'm sharing somebody else's part in my story. So all of those nuances come out and you don't think about them until you sit in there and, and you know, you're, you're sharing. So I just really appreciate people that as uncomfortable as it is, that still do it because it's not really for us. I mean, it is, it helps us to share our story, but preserving them and archiving them benefits the generations to come after us. And um, yeah, I just wanted to, that was not even a question. It was just a statement, <laughs> but I really appreciate that, that we're doing an oral history. I just wanted to give Tim an opportunity if you had anything to add to what Kate was saying um, about a, the benefit to a project like this that, that takes the time to, to hear the stories. Well, yeah, I mean, it is obviously just as important for the tribe as it is to educate 
the the community at large. Um, after all these years, you know, what forty some odd years, within the community, there, there's still misunderstandings, and um, I think what what Mackey Reach is doing is providing the opportunity for people to reach out those that want to to learn the truth. You know, here's good or bad. Here's what it was. And you learning this, you pass on to your children, you pass on what is correct. Okay. It's not the, the right or wrong thing. All right. It, it's the, the basic education of the time we lived in, in this case, and where we started and where we are now. Um, I mean, it, it is, it's extremely important that we know our own history, you know, um, and share it with each other. So I, 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 you know, I can say that with my whole heart and appreciate what you're doing. Thanks, Tim. And, and I just wanted to kind of highlight that, um, that perspectives um, theme that we seem to be, um, kind of in the background of our conversation. And when Esther had asked that question about the, how did the tribes come together? Mm -hmm. And it struck me that people might have different answers based on their perspectives or their lived experience and what they know and how when people are invited to share a story, it's their story about their lived experience. And so, you know, it might be a completely different um, way of understanding or knowing things than the next person. So that the process of gathering these stories is really diverse. And I was um, wondering, Kate, if you wanted to just share a little bit about what that perspective has kind of looked like so far, like how many stories uh, have been gathered so far in the project and, and what sort of is the spectrum of perspectives or is that what I want to say you know what I mean <laughs> and what you mean yeah um and it's I think it's a great question um we have gathered about 35 stories and um that's 35 different perspectives 35 different lived experiences um and I think I've said this before um we have met with lawyers, um, legislators, tribal chiefs, um, commissioners, poets, culture and language keepers, um, daughters of elders who were very much involved in the land claims and are no longer with us, um, and everyone in between. And I want to give just an acknowledgement to um, a consultant we had worked with in the very beginning of the project, Molly Graham, who is an oral historian. And I learned so much from her about how to conduct a personal oral history interview. And I'll never forget, um, she shared something that I have said many times in, in my outreach um, to folks about sharing their story. You do not need to be an expert on the land claims. You are an expert on your life. And um, I think many people have been hesitant to um, share their story because they may feel like they don't 
They may not fill a, a role that Tim filled, you know, who was very much involved in that moment, a leader in his community, on the negotiating team, literally in the rooms, deciding, you know, what, what would be written down in this piece of legislation. And I think people can be shy about well, I don't have much to share. And so a lot of my work has been empowering people and encouraging people that their story and their experience um, and their truth has value. And when, when those folks do say yes and you sit down with them, it is absolutely illuminating. Um, and so, yeah, if there's anyone listening to this that is on the fence about sharing their story, uh, I, I really encourage you to to reach out and um, send a message through Wabanaki Reach's website and just say, hey, I'm thinking about it and we can just have a chat. And um, yeah, but to answer your question, Maria, about the, the range of perspectives, um, it what I mentioned earlier about, you know, uh, I don't know what will become of this project aside from shedding light on people's experiences because they're all so different. Um, it's like I think Esther was saying, you know, um, or maybe it was you, Maria, uh, everybody's truth, you know, so we say it's a truth telling project and everybody's truth is their own. And so they don't all coalesce into necessarily um, like what Tim was saying, this right, correct version uh, of history, but that doesn't mean that they're wrong. They are right in knowing their experience and um, everyone's experience is different. Um, so the perspectives have been wide ranging and sometimes you go into an interview and someone might say something that is completely different than what you heard in an interview with somebody very different the day before. Um, and in an oral history interview, it's not a debate. Uh, as a story collector, I'm not in there with a journalistic approach. Um, I am, which I think is what is so powerful about a personal oral history interview. I don't have an agenda other than understanding your experience. And the story collector comes in with a great amount of curiosity about the person they're sitting across from. And, and what that does is um, the storyteller, I think, really starts to feel maybe safe enough to reveal themselves and in turn reveal history. Um, but um, anyway, so I can't go in there and say, oh, that's not what this person said, you're wrong, or that's not what I read in the book I read. You just listen. And, and hear them out. Um, and so it'll be really interesting to see uh, how all of these, how all this information um, aligns in the next phase of the project. You are listening to Dawnland Signals on WERU-FM. I am co-host Esther Ann, along with co-host Maria Gerard. Dawnland Signals is a monthly talk show where we hold space for critical conversations of truth, healing, and change. Today, we are talking about Beyond the Claims, a Wabanaki Reach truth-telling project with Kate Russell, Wabanaki Reach <clears throat> project coordinator, and Tim Love, Penobscot elder and project contributor. So I wanted to um, <clears throat> ask Tim if, if you'd be willing to share some of your recollections of that time and the, the racism that that was um, <clears throat> that Native people felt from the especially the the white communities that surrounded our our tribal communities. Yeah, well, 
needless to say, there were some very surprised people who said, how can this be? How can the Indians own our land? And there were some who attempted to talk about it, hold a discussion, try to understand it. But there were many, many people who uh, were totally turned off, negative, and all you had to do is read the newspaper comments to get the, the full picture of what some people thought, that the Indians should not have any kind of claim to my land. Uh, I wasn't around 200 years ago when it was taken. So it's mine, I have a title to it and I'm gonna keep it. And, you know, some of the discussion went beyond just discussion and uh, threats were made uh, to come near my property, I will do this and that. And you could, you know, before the claim, there was always racism, always will be. Um, but this was like an exploding bomb. If people were on the edge of saying what they wanted to say, this pushed them over the edge. And it was, it, there were times that where it was, it was very scary, you know. I had conversations with, with people in the tribe. Do you know what this person threatened to do to me? And they thought it was very real. And, you know, I could believe it. But the racism took a new, took a new hike up. And it stayed there a long time. It's still there. Um, as time went along, though, I, I think it, it did subside in words, but not necessarily in actions. I think some of the things we have seen happen, um, they probably would not have happened had the claim not come about. Um, you know, friends uh, say, I'm not your friend anymore because you're a Penobscot, and you're trying to take my land, and you know those types of things. But you know, I I feel that again, this is what this project can do: is work towards educating people, so that that racism maybe subsides by people learning. Um, I mean, that's the only way you can do it: is to provide the information in a format where they can sit down and listen or hold a conversation uh, about, well, what about this? What about that? And, and you can talk about it. Um, and I'm hopeful that that's where we're going. It, it's a forever process that never ends. But anytime you can have that kind of educating of people uh, of what went on back then of the land claims, uh, and you can hold discussions with people. You made progress that day. So that's yeah. what I see. I, I, um, I wonder, Kate, if um, there are any efforts to try to gather stories from people who were perhaps on the other end of, 
of that racist behavior and, you know, had those feelings back then. And maybe, because I know when we did the Child Welfare Truth Commission, we, um, they ended up uh, having some people, former caseworkers who had these beliefs, you know, um, back then, and they talked about it and they, you know, such a gift and a lot of courage to, to, to talk about um, their past and how they were mistaken. So I wonder if there's any, if we are going to hear from some, some non-Native people on the other side. It's a great question. You're certainly going to hear from non-Native people on the other side. Um, I don't know specifically if you will hear stories of outright um, discrimination and prejudice on their part. Um, that doesn't mean that uh, we someone can't reach out and say, I'd love to talk to you about my experience. Um, but we have spoken with non-Native um, folks who have certainly been a part of that moment. Um, like I said, lawyers, legislators, commissioners. Um, but what I will say is what I was surprised by and listening to a lot of these stories, um, something that I think is often lost in the conversation where you're talking about um, you know, mostly a team of white men on one side and 10 um, tribal leaders on the other. Um, but a theme that has been teased out from many of these stories is intertribal discrimination. Um, you know, a lot of pain, a lot of rifts, a lot of um, fights coming up in their own communities among each other, which is really painful. Um, so that has certainly been shared in, in many of these stories. And I will say, um, you know, just thinking about what Tim was sharing about education, what is so interesting to me, and, and you know, <laughs> I was in school, you know, I've had sat with history books, and um, I think what can happen, we can feel so separate when we learn history, we forget that behind this legislation that there were real people sitting there trying to figure it out. There were real flesh and blood people with, with their own trauma, their own hearts, you know, their own relationships, their own communities trying to do their best. Um, and I don't just mean the negotiators, I mean everyone. Um, and that we forget that that's a part of the history, that's a piece of the legislation is that, you know, I remember in Tim's interview, him, Tim, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember you talking about this moment leading up to the signing of it and how gut-wrenching it was. I remember you using the word gut-wrenching. It was gut-wrenching for you to, I imagine, go ahead and finally, quote unquote, settle this thing that had brought up so much turmoil in, in communities, um, you know, and how deeply personal that felt listening to you say that it was gut-wrenching for me um, and and the fallout after in certain parts of your life or with certain relationships and and in, in the broader scope of um, the state uh, and Wabanaki communities. And I, I remember specifically, Tim, I don't know if you wanna share this here. Um, you talked about the eagle feather pen that Jimmy Carter used to sign. Could you, mm -hmm. could you share that with us? Yeah, that was a very, it was like a, a shock. Um, after the land claims, um, we had possession of the eagle feather quill pen that 
Jimmy Carter used to sign the land claims and it was kept in a box. Um, in the storage room at that time, uh, in the old community building that has since been taken down. And I think I, I was talking to somebody and they were talking about land claims. And the Eagle Feather came up, how Jimmy Carter had signed with it. And I said, oh, I have that. And um, so I went to get it to show this person. I'm trying to remember who it was. But anyways, I brought the box out. And when I opened it, the entire feather was gone, nothing but the quill. It had been eaten by something, somebody said lice or what have you, but all you had was a stem, the, the, the two, no feather. And it was like, that is telling me something, you know? And it was quite a shock, you know? And all I could show them was that. <laughs> Nothing but a, but a quill. That feels so. prophetic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it was, and you know, those those kinds of things where we um, we 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 tried in our own mind, even you know, during the negotiations, post settlement, to rationalize and justify the decisions that got made to settle through negotiation rather than go into court. And that always was a nagging. And, you know, there were some people straight up, obviously, that said, hey, we can't negotiate this. we got to go to court. Um, but, you know, the, the story there was that uh, if we didn't at least try to negotiate the consequence would have been probably uh, termination of the claim by Congress and didn't want to go there either. So it was kind of going in a circle, you know, even pre-settlement, post-settlement, you always had the doubt in your mind whether you did the right thing. So. Thanks, Tim, I appreciate that. And I'm just looking at the time and we have about another seven minutes together. So I just wanted to just, um, you know, in general, um, open up the space for any last words that you might want to share. And then I'll start with Kate. Anything more that you'd like to share? I just feel so much gratitude for Tim and um, folks like Tim who have been willing to share their story. Um, it is such, I think it has been um, the deepest honor of my life thus far, to be honest with you, to be able to um, listen and um, gather and collect and, and be a part of preserving these stories. Um, and, you know, Tim has been, uh, Tim was the very first interview that I ever did for this project. Um, I didn't tell Tim that because I didn't want him to be nervous. You know, like when someone looks at a young doctor and is like, you're gonna do my surgery? How long have you been doing it? <laughs> um, but um, I, 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 just, I just want to say, uh, and I know the other story collectors feel the same way that it is such an incredible honor. And 
Um, and even though a lot of these stories are full of, they run the gamut, you know, they go from, that's what's so beautiful about a personal oral history interview is there is so much pain that's revealed sometimes and yet still so much joy. And that is a universal human experience um, and um, a, a beautiful thing to be a part of and to witness. So I just want to thank anyone who has shared their story. You too, Esther. And I know Maria, you might be sharing yours soon. Um, and Tim, thank you for being such an advocate for this project for all the help that you have. You've been a resource for me since we first met and, and I really appreciate you. Yeah, well, you're welcome. And since I was the first person you interviewed, um, it, it, it was really interesting because the line of questioning, the whole process of sitting there brought things to my mind that, uh, I forgot, and some of it was good, some of it was painful, um, but it, that that's the way it needs to be. You need to put everything on the table, and it worked for me. Thank you. Thank you. And any uh, last thoughts on the topic, Tim? Just. Um in closing well first let me just say i, I wanted to uh, acknowledge the the story collectors who have been such a incredible part of this process um and those story collectors that have been working to to visit people and gather stories are juanita grant stephanie bailey maya atien janet hoff Heather Newton-Brown, and you yourself, Kate, right? Yes. Did I forget anyone? Uh, Alyssa Ryder and Mary Daigle um, yes. collected a few stories as well in the very beginning. And we might as well say thank you, too, to Lisa Panapinto, who has been our um, wonderful transcriptionist. Yes. Listening to all the stories and, and drafting transcripts. And then early on, Molly Graham doing the um, training for the story collectors. And so it really has been a big uh, project and a, just a great team working and you, on it. You also have a little advisory board too, made up of tribal and non-tribal members too, to help guide the project. So wonderful, wonderful layers. Tim, anything, any last words, Tim? Or were those are your last words? <laughs> I lose track. I just want to say thank you. And what you are doing is invaluable to, to our history that we need to know. Thanks. Thank you. And with that, um, we're going to begin to close our program. Um, I want to say, Thank you to the listeners for joining us on Dawnland Signals. Thank you to volunteer technician Jeffrey Hodgkiss for his assistance and support. Um, and you know, big thanks to, to Kate Russell, Wabanaki Reach Project Coordinator from Beyond the Plains, Stories from the Land and the Heart, and Kachiwiliwan Timalov, Penobscot Elder, and Project Contributor with the lived uh, experiences during the land claims era. Be sure to join us next month, November 17th, 
and every third Thursday of the month for Dawnland Signals and more conversations of truth, healing, and change. Stay tuned for more great programming here on WERU-FM. Minach Kadamil. Upchnumil. Be sure to check out Reach's website if you want to contribute a story to Beyond the Claims, Stories from the Land and the Heart. See you soon.